1: Again, the site is patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton. You can also find the link in the podcast notes. Enjoy the podcast.
0: All right. It says recording. It might be lying. I don't know. (laughs) I'm here with Alan Booker. We're going to talk some more about the big black book, Permaculture, a Designer's Manual by Bill Mollison. And uh, we're into Chapter 2, finally. It, It took us a while to get here. Yes, and I got to point out that uh, in this chapter are the words, I believe it's something like mollisonian.
1: <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so so Mollison is referring to this style of thinking as a not the only style of thinking, but his style of thinking, which I appreciate very much.
1: All right. Ready? So yes, yes. So yeah, we've 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 now spent three recording sessions wandering through the front matter in chapter one and now here we are in chapter two, which is called Concepts and Themes in Design. And uh it's interesting because of course the quotes at the very beginning of the chapter have a lot to do with thermodynamics and complex, adaptive, nonlinear open systems, which is like all sorts of stuff that gets me excited because I'm a systems engineer. And I think about those sorts of things, you know. And um, it, But I've noticed that a lot of folks don't – they just haven't had the scientist background to, like, unpack all those words and understand all the depths and richnesses of meaning in some of those words, you know. And um, so if you haven't had thermodynamics, and even if you have had thermodynamics, oftentimes I don't talk about um, the dynamics of open systems and um, so you you get people talking about the laws of thermodynamics how entropy increases and so on and so forth and then it's kind of fun to ask them well if entropy is always increasing how is life possible because life is an anti-entropic process so how does that work and um, that's a bit of what Mr. Mollison is actually unpacking indirectly in the first section of this chapter. I think that's why he opens with thermodynamics. He's got, to, he's got to be looking at that and thinking about that and thinking about the fact that there's this very interesting thing that happens when you have a thermodynamically open system um, and that it's possible that in pockets of that system you have entropy running in reverse uh, because even though the second law of thermodynamics tells us that in a closed system, entropy must increase over time. It doesn't say anything about, well, this little corner of the system over here, um, you know, has to have uh, entropy increasing. It can have entropy decreasing, provided that there's at least a compensating amount of entropy increasing somewhere else. And that's exact what happens when we get the self-organizing principles of life happening on Earth. The reason that life is possible, if the organizing principles of life are even possible is because we have this energy gradient of incoming sunlight that's really highly concentrated energy and then a much lower density energy radiating out all directions into space, as infrared and that provides a thermodynamic gradient And we can surf that thermodynamic gradient and create a pocket of, you know, self-organizing, self-regulating systems that allow for us to have a – locally beat the the second law of thermodynamics and have this amazing thing called life.
0: I think that one of the most important things we're about to get into is how he says – Basically, in a nutshell, his position is, if you try to measure life, you're still going to be wrong. The the most you can do when you attempt to measure things in the world of biology, effectively, is that you're going to be able to discover new questions. Because the system is infinitely complex.
1: Mm Mm-hmm.
0: And so... it's going to just to be more and more complicated. You can you can never speak as an absolute to anything,
1: right? It's 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 an interesting thing. I think we've mentioned this earlier as we were discussing uh, through chapter one, and I kind of mentioned this idea, this Western idea of deconstructionist inquiry, and it's, it's what Mollison is actually calling out here. And we we've we've kind of hopped over. Uh, 2 1 to 2 2 there to kind of pull out that particular little detail. It's that, you know, um, the whole systems are incredibly complex to deal with. They have all kinds of variables, and, and there was this, this method of inquiry that humans came up with, and really, it's been around forever, of course, but it really got, You know, put on a pedestal back during the Enlightenment period, which was sort of like, hey, if you want to understand a thing, we'll pull it apart into its constituent pieces and then study them, and then you know, and if if that's too complicated, study the component parts of that. And then the part of the way you study it is this thing we we call the scientific method, which is in uh, one of the, the tools of it is to take and say, well, just let's study one variable at a time, you know, just uh, in order to figure out what that variable is actually doing and just hold everything else constant and then change that one variable and see what it does, you know, like pull it apart and see how that tugging on that one variable changes the system while if you don't let anything else change. And that is really pretty successful when you're doing physics and you're trying to figure out, like, you know, why is that rock falling on my head or, um, you know, how fast does that rocket have to go to get out of orbit and that sort of stuff. Um, and a couple of the other what we would call the hard sciences, you know, um, are in there as well that, that are really amenable to that that thing. And so when they started to inquire, um and it, using this method all of a sudden in organic chemistry and physics and and you know and, and a number of related fields of engineering just started to explode, and they were like wow we we got it! We figured the whole thing out <laughs> um, and they decided that they would try to apply that same sort of thing to biology, ecology, and whole systems and it turns out it don 't work that way because you can't really do that. You can't isolate a variable and truly hold it steady. Um, the mere act of trying to do so actually causes the behavior of the system to change. So, you know, it's, it, um, it means that there has been a huge amount of progress in certain sciences since the Enlightenment, but others are still... You know waiting around in the shallow end of trying to figure out the mechanistic portions, especially in biology and life sciences, uh, because we haven 't developed equally powerful tools uh, in Western thought to deal with whole systems and emergent properties and complex systems and ecological systems, and so we 're still just sort of like doing and he 's kind of he 's kind of pulling that out and pointing that out and saying that you know uh, that if you if you try to do this, um, as he says here, you cannot, in fact, control indeed uh, all or indeed any of the variables without, recre- without creating disorder in life systems. And so what he's basically pointing out is that it requires us to engage in the whole design process with a different approach. We, we, can't, we can't science it to death, you know, uh, in the way that Western science has, has been thinking about it. So it's my fault
0: that we jumped to 2.2, um, and, and now what I want to do is, is back up, and there's a couple of little tidbits from 2.1 I want to share, and
1: mm-hmm. then
0: jump into the beginning of 2.2, if you're cool with that. Yes. All right, 2.1. I've got just two, two little bits I want to share. Uh, this book emphasizes self-reliance, responsibility, and the functions of living things. So I, I agree with the analysis. I, I think that uh, that is indeed what this book is about. And then the last little bit, the very last sentence of section 2.1, the role of successful design is to create a self-managed system. And I... I don't know. From the perspective of a horticultural thing where it's kind of like uh, what kind of gardening do we do, I want to create a garden where the weeds that grow in the garden are the things I want to eat. Mm -hmm. And so as opposed to a a more conventional garden, which which requires a great deal of human interaction to get to the point, to get to harvest. And uh, I'm thinking, like, can I, can I design a system that needs zero human interaction in order to get the food? And, of course, yes, it's obviously true, because I can walk outside right now and go to truly wild land, and there are foods growing there right now that I can just reach out and harvest. And it's like, okay... All I got to do is encourage those plants and possibly discover uh, a a few dozen other species that will do equally well here or maybe create an environment for those other species to do equally well.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And that's the function of this book! That is the role of successful design!
1: And I, I think that's quite interesting to, to take and, like, spread. I, I, one of my themes that you, you, you know, me being from my background and having worked in a lot of different engineering fields, I immediately take a look at that and go, okay, in, in one sense, it's immediately obvious how that applies to, say, horticultural um, activities, right, because you're working with um, – Ecological systems and ecological systems have evolved to be self-regulating and self-managed. So as long as we just jump in there and dance the dance the right way, we can, as we talked about kind of earlier in one of the earlier sessions, we can kind of take on a role of keystone species and assist in that dance and, and make it, livelier and more rich and more diverse and so forth but then the question is like okay well how about all of the rest of the things that human beings design because boy they have a big footprint on the on the planet as well and you know to the extent that we go off and design all the rest of our technologies to be like these dead mechanistic systems um they're you know th- that that becomes very difficult to make them self manage and self regulating and self because part of that requires them to be self replicating and self repairing right in other words, these attributes of life that they can harvest the energy the path you know the, the real time energy of the sun and they can produce yields off of those things and so this is to me quite interesting to think about uh, what would it look like if we were to uh, ins- to to have a goal that the rest of human technology start moving in that direction and become more self regulating and more ecosystemic because self regulating and self managing is sort of a an attribute of ecosystems
0: absolutely and then it's and then of course now and again i 'm skipping way ahead into the chapter, but uh that's the idea of working with nature instead of against nature. It's yes. just like, what can I nudge so I can get more, as opposed to, you know, absolutely destroy and force things, you know, force a natural system, force a biological system to behave in the way I command it to, which kind of seems to be our playbook right now.
1: Yeah. On, I, I think that's a really great way of putting because, I mean, I, one of the things I, I, when I'm, I'm – Teaching systems design, one of the things I point out is these different kinds of systems uh, mechanistic systems, complex systems, and ecological systems. And a mechanistic system is just what it sounds like the mechanism, like a clock is a mechanistic system, right? It, it, you wind it up if it's a wind up clock, and it, it, you know, the gears move and everything goes, and it's very you can take it apart and you can understand it. You know, it's just like <laughs> this gear moves that thing, and so on and so forth. And then you get into what's called complex systems they start to behave in all kinds of interesting ways. You know, they have these things that, um, in complexity theory, what we would call emergent behaviors that are quite interesting. It's like, you know, when you look at the bees in the beehive, and if you were to just write down the, the rules for how an individual uh, behaves, it wouldn't become immediately obvious how the entire hive behaves. It's not until you get together all, you know, forty, sixty thousand, eighty thousand 60,000, 80,000 bees and put them together and let them all carry out their simple set of instructions together that all these emergent behaviors that make the hive like a superorganism actually emerge. And this is when we start getting into... You know, complex and then ecological systems. The difference, by the way, usually the definition is a complex system, um, does, uh, it, the, the components all exist for the, to serve the, 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 gestalt, the overall whole. Whereas in ecological systems, the individual components have their own purpose for being, because they, they may be like living entities, right? So an ecosystem, is an ecological system in that the, the the overall whole exists to in the service of all the individual members as much as the individual members exist in service to the overall whole. So when I say a complex system or an ecological system, that's what I'm kind of referring to. And what's been interesting is that the only models we have of regenerative design have been from ecological systems, and that Most of what you're taught in engineering school is to design mechanistic systems. And so what we've ended up with is instead of what permaculture wants you to do, which is to engage with complex ecological systems and dance that dance with them and become part of the complexity and create all this abundance, instead we've taken the opposite approach and say, hey, our deconstructionist worldview – works really well with mechanistic things, so let's try to take nature and beat it over the head with a stick or chemicals or whatever else and make it behave mechanistically. And that's how we've kind of gotten to 10,000 acres of monoculture soybeans chemically cultivated on a sterile dirt substrate today because that's the direction we've taken. So I think to me that highlights how, how divergent from the modern engineering mechanistic worldview this idea of is that mollison is is uh, espousing here and that permaculture takes as a premise that we will engage with and celebrate the complexity and the dynamicism of living systems um, instead of trying to like you, you know, control them to the point that, as he said they, they they function differently they they basically rebel or they go you know and that's that 's part of what he 's pointing out here in two two is that that 's the world we live in, and that 's the only model we have of sustainable regenerative um, systems at the moment, and what we 're doing instead of learning from them is trying to force them into this mechanistic um, impoverished mode of being.
0: One of the uh, points which he gets to here in a moment. I am going to read that particular point. Is um, for example, when we're a kid, we might we might take apart the vacuum cleaner to see how it works. Mm-hmm. But that does that is not a good idea. That is not, that does not work out well if you're going to try and learn things about the dog. Right. It's like uh, that's a that's a fail in many ways, especially when you try to put the dog back together again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like, uh, and you probably aren't going to learn very much about how it works, really. Um, but uh, I want to read a couple bits from the beginning of two two. Um, Although we can observe nature, living systems do not lend themselves to strict scientific definition for two reasons. Firstly, life is always in process of change. And secondly, life systems react to investigation or experiments. We must always accept, therefore, that there will never be laws in the area of biology. Hard science, such as we apply to material systems, this is what you were saying earlier, physics, mathematics, uh, inorganic chemistry... Studiously avoids life systems regarding as not quite respectable those sciences, botany, zoology, psychology, which try to deal with life. Rigorous scientific method deals with the necessity of rigorous control of variables. And in a life system, or included in any system, this presumes two things that are impossible. Impossible thing number one, that you know all variables in order to control some of them and measure others before you start. Or, impossible thing number two, that you can in fact control all or indeed any variables without creating disorder in the life system. Every experiment is carried out by people and all that that implies, mm-hmm. and the results are imparted to people and all that that implies. I I added a little all that that implies. I'm mm-hmm. he, he didn't write that. But there, okay. So there's a piece. Basically, yes. what you said, but I think he's got a very elegant way of stating it, and and I think it's absolutely true. So we get a lot of a lot of stuff at Permis where they start saying facty fact, 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 and that we point out that fact is a four-letter word that starts with the letter F, and uh, we we discourage the word fact. And, um, uh, in fact, if in fact, no, so I am saying in fact. <laughs> <laughs> so moving, the staff at uh will uh, delete posts, that are, I mean, first of all, I mean, there's all kinds of other things. Like, uh, you, you cannot suggest that anybody on Permis.com is less than perfect. We, we, uh, so there's a few different guidelines that we go by, and they're very squishy because we are dealing with living beings and all that that implies. But uh, uh, one of the things is, is if a post is too truthy, and and so I have a, a powerful philosophy that if a person comes in and states the truth, then if somebody else comes along and they have a different position than what that person stated as the truth, then it's if they're going to state their position, it's as if they're calling that first person a fucking liar. And, And so they're entering into conflict just by simply stating their own position, which is different than what was earlier presented as the truth. Now, if we let it go, the person that stated the truth will generally, nearly universally lose their shit, and they will become hostile and awful, and it'll it'll turn into this whole dogma thing. Oh, man. So, what we do is we spot stuff that's truthy. And what we encourage is for people to present their position. Now, and I think another great thing is, is that what, he's, what basically Mollison's advocating is not only to present a position instead of the truth, but he's also saying, and I reserve the right for my position to change because life systems change.
1: Yeah, I think one of the interesting things there to me is, again, you know, with ing- going through all of the sciences, uh, coming through engineering school and so forth, he, he kind of implies it here, but, you know, when you start talking about laws and you talk about the word fact, you know, um, those, the ones that we have worked out that um, I, I would, you know, would defend to some degree uh, are with the mechanistic parts of the universe, like the law of gravity. If... Um, you know somebody just decides that they, they're going to tell me that if i that I can you know just hover a ten ton um, rock fifty feet in the air because it 's convenient and they like that idea i'm i'm going to basically be very skeptical at that point in time right because that 's a mechanistic thing, and um, we understand the laws of gravity and and so the laws of physics pretty well now when you start getting into the complexities of life systems. Now it gets a lot harder to be quite so certain all the time because you know life is is in ecological systems are quite sophisticated and the kinds of behaviors that they can exhibit become you know complex. So well, I guess what I would say is the yeah the more we're getting into dealing with complex nonlinear adaptive systems the harder it becomes to make such Bold statements that this is the way it is and always has been and always shall be
0: I want to um, I want to say for the law of gravity and that's and i'm going to I'm going to simplify it some more here in just a second I'm going to say for the law of gravity it is a tool that we use to measure our physical universe at this time and I think that while the law of gravity and the math surrounding the law of gravity is something that we use in order to better understand our world now I think that it is entirely plausible that a hundred years from now that it might be the uh, old set of mathematics that we go by to describe our world and that we now have a richer set of mathematics such that it justifies how that 20-ton rock is able to hover a, a, a six feet above the ground on Earth. Um, and, and so I, I'm open to the idea, I guess is what I'm saying, and you used qualifying language earlier too. So um, yeah, I mean, your, the, the, your qualifier was that you'd be skeptical.
1: Yes, I mean the whole thing is that yes, our, our equations that have to do with inertia and gravity and everything else. Well, you know, Mister Sir, you know, Mister Newton came along and he established a certain form of mathematics, and then Einstein came along and sort of refined them. And what it turned out was that he came up with more general rules. If you look at Newton's equations. And you you basically say okay we're going to you know we're going to constrain them to the conditions that are here on Earth, then Einstein's equations pretty much simplify down to Newton's equations. So what Einstein did was gave us a set of equations that are more general, that work in, you know, almost a much broader set of circumstances. And so, yeah, it's very possible that we could come back and have a different understanding of gravity 100 years from now because we're still searching for a way of unifying the force of gravity with the other fundamental forces of nature. So maybe so. Mm-hmm. But, you know, like I said, maybe, maybe a way to put it just succinctly would be that the more simple and mechanistic the system is, the I would say the easier it is to try to investigate using the scientific method and come up with rules that give you high confidence as to their behavior and that the more complex and ecological the system, the more challenging that process is.
0: So to simplify it, what I want to do is say, is 2 plus 2 always 4? And and I think that, you know, if we choose to limit our thinking and we're going to draw lines around things and say we're going to exclude a bunch of stuff, then and we say, okay, under these conditions, 2 plus 2 is always 4. But you start working in your biology, then you start saying, well, what are we adding up here? You know, two rabbits and two rabbits. Do we have a time element in here anywhere? <laughs> is, mm-hmm. there, is there air, food, and water, you know, as well in this system? In which case, if, you know, the time element is a year, we've got air, food, and water, and, you know, whatever else, it's like it could be a lot more than four um, so, uh, I think, I think that, uh, there, there's even elements of math where two plus two doesn't always end up being four. And, uh, even, so it's kind of like, uh, I, I think that it's like, yeah, when you are in the first grade, sure, two plus two is four. And, um, when you get into other areas, it's like uh, it gets a lot squishier, and and it's like uh, there's a lot of other variables that are that are impacting your math, and your math is a lot of times going to be skewed by life. Okay, I got I got a couple more bits I want to read from 2.2, and let's want to address what I just said.
1: Oh heavens! See, if I if I went down that rabbit hole, I'd be here all day. Because the first thing I would say is, of course, you know, I was, I was trained in formal mathematics, and mathematics is what's called a formal system. It's basically a grammar of rules that are human created, and it's very interesting because there's a huge debate in natural sciences and, and in engineering as to the degree to which mathematics actually reflects reality. Right? It's like we developed this abstract system in which we define certain things. We defined all of it, and then we said, oh yes, because of these definitions, 2 plus 2 equals 4, and so on and so forth, we created this. And it's very interesting because we define mathematics as a, as a formal system with rules and so on and so forth uh, to help us you know, with making things happen in the real world. So we developed all these rules for mathematics out of these ideas that if I have two apples and here's two more, and I quote, add them, there's two apples in my bowl and I, add, and I add two more apples and I now have four apples in the bowl, right? And this was like... Um, and, and yeah, we, one we, of your we, apples has got worms in it, I'm not going to eat that. Right. But So the, the whole thing is that since mathematics is a formal system. It's an abstract system, right? It doesn't understand the, quote, real world as to, like, someone taking a bite out of your apple. or what it is. I mean, yeah, you can. You can go into fractions and so forth. But, I mean, I guess what I'm saying is that there is this, this uh, there's been a very under, a very interesting underlying debate as theoretical mathematicians have gone off and have done work and tried to, like, work with this system we've created. And they've said, oh, look, in math, there are these patterns that emerge. And so, is that pattern telling us something about the real world, or is it just an interesting pattern? It's an artifact of the rules we made up. And it's been very fascinating to watch all of that because, you know, the, the quote, the reality of what's going on inside of math is arising somewhat out of rules that we created because we were trying to get things done in the real world. Because at the end of the day, you know, we can have all these long theory, you know, theoretical discussions of and conjecture, but at the end of the day, you know, we probably want to eat and, and not freeze to death and so forth. So we, we, we use these tools to get things actually done. So, you know, math was kind of brought up as a discipline out of that whole tendency on people to like prefer to like not starve to death or whatever. And therefore their tools kind of had to work. At least practically enough that they could get things done. But now we've, we've developed these tools to such an abstract degree that these theoretical mathematicians are off running around finding patterns in them and coming back and asking questions. Do do these patterns actually tell us anything about the real world? You know, so these are interesting, interesting things that are coming on right now, but it just, it's a reminder that what's happening in math is just a toolkit. It was designed to help us with the real world, but there's not really a one-to-one mapping between what math says and what happens in the real world because the real world is the, – the, the, uh, the map is not the terrain, as the saying goes. The math is evolving.
0: Yes. I mean, I think, I think that we've seen a lot of growth over the last several hundred years and how, how we approach math and how, how – and then I think it's I, – I love the idea that somebody can go and explore and find patterns – in math, and then, show enough, there it is out in the wild of biology. Yep. Fascinating. And mm-hmm. so I think there's been a lot of really cool stuff in that space. And at the same time, I, I would not be surprised if a 100 years from now, if it wasn't an absolute that 2 plus 2 is four, even in an abstract world. That it's like, you know, there's, there's more to it than that. Um, but, okay, I'm, I'm going to step away from that for a moment. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read two more little bits from section 2.2. 2. Okay. Uh, experiments, therefore, are not decisive, rigid, or true findings, but... An eternal search for the variables that have not been accounted for previously. All right, so we're talking about life systems. Mm-hmm. Scientific method is one way to know about the real world, the world we are part of and live in. Observation and contemplative understanding is another. We can find out about many things, both living and inorganic, by timing, measuring, and observing them. Enough to make calendars, computers, clocks, meters, and rulers, but not ever enough to understand the complex actions in even a simple living system. You can hit a nail on the head or cause a machine to do so and get a fairly predictable result. Hit a dog on the head and it will either dodge, bite, uh, or die, but it will never again react in the same way. Okay, those were my two things, my two bits that I wanted to read really quick.
1: Yeah, and, and what he's like doing there is he's giving examples of the responses of a mechanistic system versus an ecological system, right? That, as we said, the that when you have a mechanistic system, it is it is easier to predict what it's going to do, practically speaking. When you get into living systems, now the dance becomes more complicated, and the actors have can have their own agendas. What is a here, F A K I R. That's a good question. I,
0: well, <laughs> you just said you don't know. <laughs> That's right.
1: <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, Are I guess we should look that it? one up.
0: Yeah, because it's it's in the next quote. Yes. Uh, I don't know. I'd have no idea what it is. Well, I'll start looking well, it up while you know. uh, uh, a Muslim or loosely a Hindu religious ascetic. Who lives solely on alms? Okay. Mm, okay. So here's here is the, the the quote from the book from this segment from this section 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 two point two. There are several ways not to face life, by taking drugs, watching television, becoming a fakir in a cave, or Reading in pure science—all are an abdication of personal responsibility for life on Earth, including, of course, one's own life. Um, okay, that's a that's a kick in the nuts to science, isn't it?
1: <laughs>
0: I believe so. Didn't I think mm-hmm. uh, Mollison just uh, did a healthy kick? I'm not sure. Am I wrong?
1: Well, he said pure sciences, and I think that's kind of interesting that he put that adjective in there, because it, he, he has, you know i don't think he's basically saying with this quote that all sciences are completely useless i think what he's saying is if i'm reading him properly that if we get in if we let our sciences become an exercise in introspective navel gazing and conjecture and divorce them from the realities of working with life systems in a positive way that they can become toxic if they're pursued in this, you know, as a form of excuse expressions uh, self intellectual masturbation, and for some people that's what they become. Absolutely, I, I think uh, um, we've had a few
0: instances on permuse.com where there were people where this is the the path that they have chosen, and I think it's acceptable if you wish to choose a path like that, just as you choose a path to uh whittle, you know while away a majority of your life in front of a television or on drugs or whatever um but that doesn't mean that and but the the, the thing that they seem to insist upon is that all other people must follow this path also and it's like no that's
1: uh, not okay here um you're lo- you must be looking for a different website <laughs> I, I think there's an interesting thing that that Certain people do, which is to become obsessed um, about certain ideas and and so you can get people who are just convinced that like mathematics should be pursued for its own sake right it 's like they want to become a what you would call a pure mathematician because math is beautiful, and they they basically just get into this thing of like let 's just follow the let 's follow the beauty of math as deep into this abstract world of as we can. And I remember, you know, running into a number of those because I'm, you know, I, I had to do a lot of math as an engineer, but there was this feeling by some pure mathematicians that we were somehow sullying the pure beauty of math by, you know, going off and doing the stuff we did with it. Um, <laughs> you know, that, that. We, we, we were making it dirty by going out there and applying it to real stuff, whereas it's all this, in all this abstract beauty, we should be worshipping at the altar of the abstract beauty of mathematics. And I think that, you know, that is... Maybe part of the problem that mollison is is kind of poking at it, it may be the hardest here i 've also noticed sort of the same thing there come people there are people that I run into who just really get excited about computer technology and when you look at it, you realize that it 's just because it 's such an interesting application of human technology that they can basically get consumed with computers for computers sake right to me i 've kind of I kind of went through a little bit of that phase where I was learning computers. Like, oh, this is really cool. I didn't learn all this about it. And then I kind of got to the point of, like, well, wait, in the end, this is a tool. And uh, I'm interested in what this tool can do for us and how we can use this tool. But, you know, um, maybe there is more to life than just staring at a computer screen and, and just because computer, you're obsessed with computer technology. And, um, so I, I think there 's an interesting thing where people can get just hyper obsessed with abstract ideas because I think part of it is when you get out in the real world and start to put your hands on things like engineers have to. The real world doesn 't always do what you want it to, but when you 're stuck inside your own brain with your abstract thoughts, you can pretty much go wherever, wherever you want in reality you know you don 't have to deal with with um, with certain parts of reality, you can kind of segment them off in your, in your brain and only explore those things that you're really interested in. Whereas if you go off and try to grow a tomato, uh, reality has a lot to say about that, and you can't ignore it if you want to successfully grow a tomato.
0: And, and it, just in growing a tomato, I think that uh, 99% of people are going to believe that uh, you can only grow a tomato the way other people have grown tomatoes in the past that's that's it that's all that's available it's It's a little bit like the analogy i I use this a lot where I say people there are people that are so stuck on pure science that their position is is that it is not possible for anybody to go to Mars unless somebody has already gone to Mars and written a white paper about it <laughs> i mean tell me i my impression is. A good, I'm say 80% of scientists, this is basically their mantra. They don't realize they sound this ridiculous. Would you agree with this number? Would you pick a different number? 80%. You cannot possibly go to Mars
1: unless somebody has already gone to Mars and written a white paper about it. I think there's a huge number. I'm trying to think, get my head wrapped around. It's hard for me to put... It, like put exact numbers on it because I, I need more data, but I, I know it's a high percentage of people who there is, there's this thing built into science which is to be extremely skeptical of anything new, and it's kind of pushed in there in such a way that it's, it almost gives undue deference to what we already, quote, know. You know, existing yeah. stuff that's gone through the peer review process and so forth. And it's like we're going to, we're going to basically view with extreme skepticism anything that isn't accepted orthodoxy. Which I and, think is healthy.
0: That's a healthy thing. Have that extreme yeah. skepticism.
1: Yes, I do. But then what happens is sometimes what happens, it gets into the point where they're defending things which are no longer really defensible. That, you know, there's there's an old saying in science uh, that um, science progresses one funeral at a time. And it's because what ends up happening is you have people who, you know, these tenured professors and so forth, and their career is built around espousing a particular set of ideas. Maybe they helped create those set of ideas back when they were graduate students and writing their Ph.D. theses. And so they've been teaching that now for decades, and now these young whippersnappers come along and they have new different ideas. And um, there's a, there is a meaningful level of skepticism for new ideas, but then there is what goes beyond meaningful skepticism to basically knee jerk defense of old ideas simply because they're old ideas. This is a constant fight and struggle in science. And um, that's why sometimes literally a field won't move forward until the old guard retires or dies. Um, and then new ideas are able to be accepted. So it's it is a, it's a constant struggle, uh, I think, that's in, in the, the realm of science and uh, in, in the, the way it's being done. In the Western world these days,
0: I I agree with that, um, and I, I I'm going to pretend that you just validated the the thing I said, but uh, you don't, don't have to actually utter <laughs> those words. Um, but I think at the same time, the, the old guard, and they're getting so defensive. I think that part of how they get to be so defensive is that dumb fucks challenge their stuff without having done their due diligence. Like, they don't even know what they're talking about, and they, they, they perpetually say, that's dumb, that's stupid, whatever, because they haven't learned that this is a more complex system, that this is a more co- complex uh, philosophy, um, a more complex uh, idea. So, <clears throat> all right, the next bit. Oh, this is good. I, I really like This is short and delicious. Perverse planning is everywhere obvious houses face not the Sun but rather the road lawns replace gardens and trees are planted to be pruned and tended <laughs> I don't know I, I think that's uh it, it, it's totally true and I think it, it, it's indicative not only of um, the mentality of the builder, but the mentality of the builder is to make coin. Mm-hmm. And it turns out most home buyers don't give a rat's ass about the house facing the sun. Mm-hmm. They have oh. other criteria for
1: buying their house. At least if there is an air conditioning unit in the house that lets them set the temperature and forget about it. Very true. You know, it, it, it's it's a very interesting. I mean, this is another observation I've made out of out of a couple of decades of doing engineering, which is that human beings, um, it's you know, having to deal with the complex nonlinearities of the real world out there. It creates a constant set of challenges for us. And so the lazy parts of us basically say, oh, I don't want all those complex challenges. I want everything to be simple and linear. Instead of having to deal with the changing illumination of the sun all day, wouldn't it be nice if I could just flip a switch and turn the light on flip the switch and turn the light off and I get the exact amount of illumination that I want right when I want it, regardless of time of day and night. And so... You know, that's what they ask of us as engineers. Yeah, I flip the light switch. I want the predictable, uh, very linear mechanistic response out of the system. I want to go turn the thermostat to 72 degrees and it stay exactly 72 degrees. I want to turn on the hot water tap and hot water to always come out and, you know, at a certain pressure and so on and so forth. And that's been the demand of... Uh, of, of the, quote, consumer culture now for, the, for a good long time. And so this whole thing is that is a very unnaturalistic um, set of criteria. Nature doesn't work that way. Nature is complex and dynamic and always changing, as we've said several times now. And, you know, what we ask in our house is that it be the opposite of all of that if we were going to go buy a house. I want it to always be exactly the same, always dry and at 50% humidity and 72 degrees Fahrenheit and, you know, and this and that and that and this and to behave this way and for the heat to always come onto the stove when I push this little button so that I can cook my food. And um, this has driven people into this idea that you know, and, and habituated them into working with mechanistic systems. And, therefore, when they go out and they start working with ecological systems, if that is the way they have been inculturated from the time that they were born, they can start to have a meltdown because the complex ecological systems don't behave that way. They are... You know, for some reason, they weren't designed from the ground up to uh, cater to human whims. They have their own agendas and their own dynamics, and they're complicated. And so learning to dance with that is a whole different mindset than the I live in a house and, you know, turn on the lights and the water always comes out the tap mindset.
0: I'm kind of thinking, like, when the house is oriented towards the road – um, I can say to you, Alan, front yard, and you know what that means, mm-hmm. and backyard. Now, I think that in the country there's still a bit of an element of that. I mean, even if your house is oriented towards the sun, um, we'll have, but, but, when it, but in most settings, especially urban and suburban, we say front yard and backyard, it, there are certain attributes of saying that, and we know what that means, and it comes it's, it's so ingrained in these designs which are not oriented to the sun. Mm-hmm. We, we now we can have this whole other sub language about it.
1: Yes, with social okay. significance attached to it because there's a, there's a social significance to the idea of a front yard and a backyard in suburbia. That's true. I know that, like, when I lived with my granddad,
0: everybody that we knew came to the back door. Nobody nobody would ever come through the front door. That would that'd be just crazy. The only <laughs> people that ever came to the front door were people that we did not know. The people that yes. we did not know would never come to the back door. That would be unthinkable. And so, I don't know, this is kind of how you live your life. It's this whole... And I think that's a very standard thing about country living,
1: when mm-hmm. it comes to the back door. Public space versus private space. Right,
0: right. Well, plus, the back door goes to the kitchen. The front mm-hmm. door goes to the living room, which is kind of a funny name because life is really happening in the kitchen. Yes. Yeah, and and so, uh, um, yeah, you, you go to the back door because that's where the people are. You're going to go back. You're looking for somebody, although everything's different now because we all got these phones. <laughs> 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 but all right, so that, so. getting into section 2.3, there is a statement there that pushes a button for me and I want I, I want to share a little bit of a story. So this is about trees and paper because in the book, Bill says, this book carries a tree tax. And I think what he's saying is, is that you know it's paper, which came from a tree, and and so the, you know it's a book, and so we we had to cut some trees down to make this this book. But the story I want to tell is that when we did the Kickstarter for uh, the better the Better World book, <clears throat> um, uh, I emailed Kickstarter's support and I said, uh, "Hey, we got this Kickstarter going." And you've got this section about environment stuff. Could you please put our book about the environment in your environment category? And so I got a reply. The reply said, hi, I am the person that's in charge of what appears in the environment category. I have one question. Will your book be printed on recycled paper? okay, here is where I'm a dumb fuck. Because I could have just said, yes, and then left <laughs> it at that. And and instead... But no, Paul has to go poke the hornet's nest, yes. Yeah, instead, I pointed <laughs> out a couple of things that... I kind of feel bad that it's being printed on recycled paper because I know that recycled paper, in order to be able to be used as paper, requires more chemicals and glue to pull it off than if you used fresh wood. And and not only that, people are like, oh, deforestation for paper. A, we use a lot less paper now than we used to. I mean, we don't even... Need- newspapers would be one way of, of pointing at it, but but it's like I mean, I worked, when I was 20, I worked in an accounting office <laughs> you want to talk about paper oh man and now, so much of it's just totally electronic it's quite, it's, it's almost paperless and uh, but things have changed so much, there's so much less paper, so there's that but another thing is is that most of the in fact i kind of wonder what this rampant forest fires thing that's happening right now so many forest fires i wonder if those forest fires would be less forest fires if we used paper as much as we used to because a lot of the uh wood that they would use would be would be effectively what we call here junk pole and it's a bunch of wood that um it's, it's from trees that are too small for wood. And so it's like, okay, let's clear these trees out. We're going to basically remove the forest fire fuel from the forest and go turn it into paper. So now we're going to leave the bigger, healthier trees behind, and someday they'll be harvested for wood. And then, of course, how it used to be hundreds of years ago, was, was two things here in the United States one is is that lightning strikes would create all these forest fires and nobody would ever put them out and they'd eventually burn themselves up. but there were so many forest fires that they were all small they couldn't go very far because they'd get to a point where there was a forest fire last year or something like that and it would run out of fuel and it would go out the other thing is, is that the native population was like you know these trees are getting in my way let's set them on fire And they'd burn them out. They'd basically start the fires, but they could only go so far because there's, you know, forests are only so big because of all the constant forest fires every year that nobody ever puts out. So now we put the fires out. So now the fires are uh, when they when a fire gets going, it can get way bigger than than ever before. The key is is that. The trees that were taken down oftentimes were already dead, and they would pull trees out of the forest in order to make the paper. Oftentimes, it's not that bad of a use of that wood, and it would not lead to deforestation that they're thinking of. It kind of does, and that wouldn't it be better to like cut that tree into bits and then leave it there to become the organic matter? For the future generations of trees, but there is a use for it, and it can be done in such a way that it's done sustainably. So it, it, it's it's different. It's not it's not what they think. Like like all these trees are being permanently wiped out, and it's kind of like yes and no. It's not that simple. Anyway. I'm more concerned about the glue in the paper than I am about the trees in the paper. There. That was was the thing. That's the thing that I told her. The book never appeared in the environmentalist (laughs) on that Kickstarter. Um, And I should have just said yes and shut up because it did. It's printed on recycled paper. Um, And, yeah. But at the same time, even if it is uh, virgin paper, chances are that instead of using a technique of making the paper that I would find enjoyable—making the lignins or uh, um, uh, processing the lignins, mashing the lignins through an entirely mechanical process—they still add in toxic gick to the paper to, to make it be a certain way. So Oh yes, yeah. that's exactly yeah. what they do. And This podcast is continued in part two.
1: Don't forget, go out to patreon.com slash wheaton and make a pledge for future artifacts.